comes from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Someone might claim, you have faith and I have, no, I have action, but how can I see your faith apart from your actions? Instead, I'll show you my faith by putting it into practice in faithful action. And I wanted to share the same verses from the message translation. I often just find a little different or deeper meaning, meaning um, in the words of that version. Um, he writes, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this, in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate, what, indicate that a person really has it? For instance, if you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup, where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fits together, hand in glove. Faith and works, work and faith fit together, hand in glove. This letter is believed to have been written by Jesus' brother, not to be confused with James, son of, the, uh, son of Zebedee, the disciple. James, or James the Just, was an important figure in the early church. Scholars believe that this letter would have been written prior to the war in Rome, A.D. 66, and his teachings addresses, address the tension leading up to that war. The scriptures tell us that he was one of the few individuals Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And as followers of Jesus multiplied, the apostle Paul called James the pillar of the church. And so I love knowing that this letter was one of the earliest epistles written and included in the New Testament. It perhaps reveals accounts of the way we are called to live and that demonstrate, demonstrate firsthand knowledge of walking alongside Jesus. And I found a lot of practical situations addressed in this short five-chapter letter, ranging from dealing with envy and finding wisdom, gossip and boasting, situations that weren't just contextual or applied only to the early Christians. And James writes with passionate concern for the role of faith and the role of action within these concrete circumstances of our lives. The passage that I just read will undergird today's message, faith and works, works and faith fit together, hand in glove. Well, you were given a strip of paper, or it was actually tucked inside your bulletin today as you came in this morning. Um, if you're joining us on Zoom, hopefully you've had enough time to get a strip of paper for yourself, or you can just observe the demonstration up front. 
as you hold this strip of paper in front of you, you're probably able to make a couple of observations. The paper has two sides. Um, if we put it together end to end, it makes a circle. And actually, let's hold that thought for a moment because it's this kind of circle that I want to talk about for a moment, use sort of as a metaphor. About 20 years ago, I was involved in the beginnings of a charter school here in Boise. Um, it was an exciting time as I helped in creating a program that bridged the school to the community and the community back to the school. At the same time, I was leading a small group Bible study at the cathedral called Mom's Morning Break. We attended church every Sunday. Um, kids were in programs, they were in the choir. I was a Bible study leader, but I kept my two worlds very separate. I had my spiritual church side and my fun educator side. There was a comfortable separateness between my two lives. Until one morning at mom's morning break, we were doing a study about living out our faith in our everyday lives. And I remember very clearly saying, you know, I'm not really sure anybody at school knows that I'm a Christian or knows that I go to church. And there was this noticeable silence in the room and a bunch of like, huh, looks from all of my friends that were in this Bible study. And it was like my words just hung in the air. And I remember having this feeling that things were about to change. The, the very next week at school, I got a new office mate, a special ed teacher, who turned out to be part of an evangelical church, and she shared her faith openly and often. Her first order of business was to hang posters in our shared office. God is love. Jesus saves, and other overtly themed messages on our walls. And in my horror, I wondered, is somebody going to think they're mine? Well, my confession, just days before mom's morning break, had revealed that I really had been quite comfortable keeping the two surfaces separate, sacred on one side, secular on the other. I bought into the idea that part of my life is disconnected from the sacred work of prayer and worship I do on Sundays, that somehow the sanctuary is separate from my workplace or neighborhood or home. And I could keep the two parts of me separate, almost blind to one another, and feel like somehow I was complete. Well, the rest of that story from that point onward is for another time. But my confession from in mom's morning break that day not only revealed the duality of my living, but it also gave me the opportunity for the spirit to do her incredible life-giving work in my life. And so I think we do struggle with the temptation to divide our secular world and work from our, from our spiritual world and work. But we also may wonder, what does Sunday worship have to do with my work? Are our spiritual activities like Sunday worship, prayer, offerings, our real and important duties while our daily work or jobs are inferior? Or is it that the nitty gritty of our workday world is our real work and our spiritual lives and Sunday worship are add-ons? 
What if the kingdom of God came both through our gathered worship each week and our scattered worship in our work each day of the week? Whether that work is in our home or out in the community someplace. And so back to our piece of paper. What if we connected this strip a different way? You'll see on your strip there is a piece of two-sided tape. I want you to take the little, the little piece off of it so it reveals the sticky part of it. And then you also see this little green happy face. You are about to make one twist and then connect the loop so that the happy face is stuck to the tape side. So you're no longer going to see the happy face. It's stuck to the tape. And it should make a loop like this. And once you've done that, help your neighbor if your neighbor needs help. Are we having, do we need a little time? You're going to take your strip and make one turn and then connect it. <laughs> one turn and then connect it. And I see back here. There you go. Okay. Let's take a few moments to help our, oh, you know what? You've got one that doesn't have the tape on it. That's why. All right, well, this is, <laughs> this is a continuation of my work week <laughs> in many ways. There you go. I know, I did. <laughs> All right. We'll take a few more moments for you to find the green face goes on the tape side. And to get it to do that, you need to twist it. It's going to make something called a Mobius strip. Because now, if you take your finger and you trace it around the outside surface, all of a sudden you find your finger going to the inside surface. And then it comes back again to the outside surface. It's almost like a continuing surface. No longer do we have two sides. And I'm pretty sure there's a mathematical equation associated with this, but we don't need to make sense of that in order to use this as an image or a metaphor. As you look at the Mobius strip, it does look like these inner and outer surfaces flow together seamlessly, co-creating the whole. And so let's take, this, let's take this metaphor one step further. What if we thought about it this way? Whatever, inside, whatever is inside of us continually flows outward, helping to form the world, depending on what we send out. And whatever is outside of us continually flows inward, helping form us, depending on how we take it in. 
bit by bit, we and our world are endlessly forming in this eternal inner outer flow and exchange. And I believe that we are shaped and formed every day, whether we know it or not, by practices, rituals, and habits that make us who we are. St. Augustine is a fourth century philosopher who greatly influenced Western Christianity. He introduced the philosophy that humans are morally responsible for their actions. Now, this might not seem revolutionary, but Augustine lived during a time when the Roman Empire, a symbol of strength and stability, was being tested and crumbling. And his own personal life was filled with loss and tragedy. And so to believe in God, he had to find an answer as to why, if God is all-powerful and also purely good, why would God still allow suffering and evil to exist? He argued that human beings are capable of free will and are among the causes of suffering in the world. This was revolutionary at the time when most philosophers and religious scholars were pointing to the character of Satan as the cause of evil in the world. In St. Augustine's view, sin is a perversion of human behavior and goes against its nature of goodness. It's a malformation of the image of God in which we are all created. And so, to be people of faith, Christ followers, and to live in the way of love is to be formed differently, to take up practices and habits that aim our love and actions towards God and neighbor. I'll give you a very practical illustration of this. In church on Sundays, we participate in liturgy. Liturgy translates to work of the people. It's a ritualized way of worship. We repeat this each week. At Collister, our liturgy always includes a time of showing gratitude and praising God for the small and big ways God shows up in our lives. We pray for others and ourselves. When life's tragedies impact our lives, we surrender our own will and ask God for guidance, healing, and intervention. We practice generosity, giving of our gifts and offerings. We practice hospitality and asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. And we sing songs that reach our soul with these messages. These patterns of worship form us in a way of being in the world. So what if the rhythms and liturgy on Sundays, the liturgy that forms us, the prayers, the songs, the surrender, the confession, the words of forgiveness, what if these habits and practices shape our lives for the other six days of the week? Perhaps the simplest example is the sacramental practice of communion that we have on Sundays, or Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving. We're remembering gifts given by Jesus who calls himself the bread of life. And so at our dinner tables each night, we bow our heads and we thank God for our food that sustains us. And we give thanks for those who are sitting at the meal with us and perhaps remembering those who have sat at the table with us but are no longer able. This was a nightly ritual ingrained in me from the time that I can even remember. And so it was so formed in me that I pause in gratitude for meals automatically, almost without thinking. And it became a nightly ritual for my own family. And even though the kids are out of the house, giving thanks before our meal continues to happen at our now very small table. And perhaps this pausing for prayer at a meal can also remind me to receive the day and all it contained as a gift. This moment of pause before a meal conditions me and forms me in the way of gratitude 
the way that perhaps weekly Sunday liturgy forms me. So I happened upon this book this summer, and it's called Liturgy of the Ordinary. The author explores this idea that our daily mundane moments, our habits of life, could be more rooted in the communal practices, the liturgy of the church, that our Sunday practices might shape us through habit and repetition, moment by moment, into people who spend their days and lives made and formed by the love of God. So the author walks through an average day looking at these common and perhaps overlooked daily practices as liturgies of the day, like making the bed, eating leftovers, sitting in traffic. And she also asks the questions, are our Sunday worship practices and liturgies forming us in ways we can live as people who have been loved and transformed by God? And are these same practices and habits of the other six days of the week forming us in ways that we can live as people who have been loved and transformed by God? Those are big questions. Because our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. On Sunday in gathered worship, we sit together or we use the Zoom link. In repetition and in predictability, we lean into the repetition the slow rhythms of life and of faith, and the unforced rhythms of grace become our habits in the world. Tish Warren's book walks you through a typical and sometimes mundane work of the day through the lens of sacred practices. For example, she talks about the endless and repetitive work of doing the dishes. And she illustrates her point by talking about a sign that hangs on the wall in a Christian community house that says, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> and to be completely honest, I want to be part of the revolution for things to be made new and just and whole in beautiful and big ways. But to prepare for those moments or movements to get to the revolution part, I think you just have to learn to do the dishes the quiet and repetitive and ordinary things that sustain our Christian living that form us for living in the bold and courageous ways that God calls us into. But you know, I move a little fast sometimes. I don't think I'm alone in this. My days are scheduled tightly with little margin for unexpected things to happen, like losing my keys. And perhaps that's why the chapter called Confession and Truth About Ourselves resonated with me so much. She writes, I have a plan for my morning. Run by the store to pick up a side for dinner and some dish soap, then head to a meeting. So after I brush my teeth and help Jonathan get the kids off to their activities, I get dressed quickly and eat breakfast. I throw on my favorite corduroy coat hoist my computer bag over my shoulder and head towards the door. I go to grab the car keys at the entry table we bought and painted robin's egg blue for the express purpose of having a spot for keys. Next to the jar of dried lavender and stack of mail are two key rings that hold the keys to the car, the house, and our neighbor's house, and, well, a couple of other purposes for which I have forgotten. But I keep, I keep holding on to them because you never know. Cue the sound of screeching brakes. The keys aren't there. I check the side pocket of my bag, then the pants I wore yesterday, then my bag again. I start to panic a little. I take off my coat, I walk into my kitchen, and I look on the counter. I have lost my keys. 
With them goes all sense of perspective. With them goes my plan, and then goes my cool. These instruments that I use for security and freedom to lock out bad guys and get where I need to go have suddenly become a means of imprisonment. I'm stuck. Where could they be? I go through the stages of searching for lost objects. Stage one, logic. I retrace my steps. I look in the place that makes sense. I breathe. I try to maintain, maintain calm and rationale. This is not that big of a deal. They'll turn up. Stage two, self-condemnation. As I make my way through each room, scanning shelves and surfaces, I begin to self-flagellate under my breath. I am such an idiot. Where did I put those keys? Why am I such an idiot? Stage three, vexation. I get frustrated. I curse. Each second that passes leaves me slightly angrier. I switch back and forth between blaming myself and blaming others. My kids, they probably played with them and lost them. Did Jonathan take them? I text him. No help there. God must know where my keys are. Why isn't God helping me? I'm having a mild theological crisis over a two-inch piece of metal. Stage four, desperation. I start looking everywhere, even places that don't make sense. I'm rummaging through my drawers and looking under beds, checking the pants pocket that I've already checked three times, grumbling. I check the time. It's been nine minutes. Stage five, last ditch. I stop and pray. Okay, breathe, I tell myself. That I'm being ridiculous, that I'm overreacting. Calm down. I quickly ask God for a restoration of perspective. I remember that a Catholic friend of mine once asked, once told me to ask St. Anthony to pray for us when we've lost something. So for good measure, I murmur as I check my sock drawer, uh, St. Anthony, not sure how this works, but if you could hear me, can you please pray for me and find my keys? And stage six, despair. I give up. I plop on the couch. I will never find my keys. This cause is hopeless. I am hopeless. I will be trapped here until the end of time and until we shell out the money to replace them. Outside the window, my locked, I look my, at my locked car. I see naked trees and hopping sparrows, but I will not notice. Everything is worthless. The morning is ruined. Stupid keys, stupid me, stupid planet, stupid universe. Then, a bit ashamed and feeling guilty about my overreaction, I pull myself together and begin once again, step one, repeat the cycle. Seven minutes later, I find my keys under the couch. I have no idea how they got there. I yelp to no one in particular, found them, cue the hallelujah chorus. I will quickly move on out the doorway, skip the grocery store, head straight to my meeting. My lost keys ended up being the hiccup in the day, no big deal, a tiny forgettable 15 minutes, but it was also the apocalypse. Apocalypse literally meaning un unveiling or uncovering. In my anger, grumbling, self-berating, cursing, doubt, and despair, I glimpsed for a few minutes how tightly I cling to control and how little control I actually have. And in the absence of control, feeling stuck and stressed, those parts of me that I prefer to keep hidden were momentarily unveiled. Small things go wrong. I feel hurried or overwhelmed, and frustration mounts, and I snap. These frustrations in my day are, of course, insignificant compared to the immense suffering in others' lives and in the broader world. In my own life, there have been seasons of deep sorrow, and losing my keys is not that. And yet, here is where I find myself on an ordinary day, and here, in my frustration, irritation, and anger, is where God wants to meet me. It's like when suffering is sharp and profound, I expect and believe that God will meet me in the midst of it. 
and I look to find mercy or grace in the darkness. But it's almost like my theology is too big sometimes to touch a typical day in my life. And the challenges of the daily grind. The Sunday practices and liturgy don't flow together with the circle, with the Monday through Saturday practices. The two stay separate, blind to one another. What if we cultivated the practice of meeting God in these small moments of frustration, of being judgmental or angry, and of encountering the story we remember every Sunday, Christ's death and resurrection, the story of brokenness and redemption, the story of our brokenness and our redemption, even and especially in the small, frustrating, frantic moments of a Wednesday morning. Because we could spend Sunday mornings imagining and faithfully remembering Christ's suffering in a broken world and the new life and hope that comes from a loving God, while we spend our actual days in grumbling, discontentment, low-grade despair, and not aware of how accessible God is to, all, to us in all of these moments, it's the beautiful both and of our faith. And this is the message that's on my heart today. The work we do together each week in gathered worship transforms and sends us into the work we do in our homes and offices. And as we come to church each Sunday, we're building capacity. We're building patterns and habits through our liturgy to love others, Praise God for blessings. Forgive ourselves and others to be generous and grace-filled. And when we confess and receive assurance of forgiveness together, we're like a football team practicing its plays or a drama club rehearsing its lines. We practice confession and repentance that the failures or successes of our lives aren't what define us or determine our worth before God. We remember we're defined by Christ's love and work on our behalf. And so we humble ourselves together. We admit the truth. We confess and repent. And we practice this posture that we could embrace every single day. So in the moments of lost keys or frustrations or overreactions, we can respond with self-condemnation or blaming. Or we can see these moments to practice confession or mercy or compassion. We can see these moments as opportunities for formation, liturgy of the ordinary, and we can perhaps look below the surface to identify the true fear of losing keys, fear of failure or of being incompetent, or that we won't be able to take care of those things we need to take care of. When little things go wrong, these little cracks reveal that we are profoundly in need of grace. And because we practice asking for forgiveness and repentance, we are connected to the larger story of brokenness and redemption. Jesus' stories and scriptures we read on Sundays tell us that Christ showed us how to live, that we might live life abundantly all of the days of the week. At the end of our worship each week, we are blessed and sent out into the world through a benediction. We are blessed and sent. And the kingdom of God is coming, both through our gathered worship each week and our scattered worship in our work each day. And there might be temptation to compartmentalize worship from work, 
but we are blessed and sent to be part of Christ's mission in the world. We are blessed and sent to go do the work God has given us to do. In a liturgy of the ordinary, the author talks about her inbox and email and how being blessed and sent sometimes seems pretty distant in the annoying task of email some days. And yet she points out each message in our inbox is in some way touches on our vocation or our vocations. Each email I have in my inbox has to do with my professional life or my family and friends or my public life. Our task is not to somehow inject God into our work, but to join God in the work God is already doing in and through our vocational lives and in our homes. This kingdom vision, our identity as those blessed and sent, must work itself out in the small routines of our daily work and vocation. As we go to meetings, as we check our email, as we make our children dinner, mow the lawn, interact with others in the grocery store or in the Walmart parking lot. I'd like to close with a song that I learned years ago. Um, it was written by one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Carrie Newcomer. Every once in a while, this song comes up in my memory, and I always think that I should just play it each morning in prep for my day. Um, I do think that the message in this song is very in keeping with the one from today. Uh, the name of the song is called Holy Is. Holy is the dish and drain, the soap and sink and the cup and plate, the warm wool socks and the cold white tile, shower heads and good dry towels, and frying eggs that sound like psalms, with a bit of salt measured in my palm. It's all a part of a sacrament. As holy as the day is spent Holy is the busy street The cars that boom with passion's beat And the checkout girl counting change The hands that shook my hands today And hymns of geese fly overhead and spread their wings like their parents did. Blessed be the dog that runs in her sleep to chase some wild, elusive thing. Holy is the familiar room and quiet moments in the afternoon and folding sheets like folding hands. To pray as only laundry can I'm letting go of all I fear Like autumn leaves made of earth and air For the summer came and the summer went As holy as the day is spent Holy is the place I stand to give whatever small good I can The empty page, the open book 
Redemption everywhere I look Unknowingly we slow our pace In the shade of unexpected grace With grateful smiles and sad lament As holy as the day is spent And morning light sings providence as holy as the day is spent it's just such a beautiful song as holy as the day is spent what if we spent each day looking for the holy and experiencing the holy, the sacred in everyday tasks and habits and in each interaction. And then we return to church each Sunday to be filled again and practice at this school of love, to be sent out once again, blessed to be a blessing in our communities and homes and workplaces, making life-giving choices in these inevitably daily sticky moments because of the rhythms of faith and the liturgy that have formed us. And when we trace our finger around the surfaces and the way, around the way of living, we realize that it looks like it has two sides, but really it's continuous. And there's no separation between the work we do as people gathered in worship and our work in the world. The two are intrinsically Part of one another. Please pray with me. Loving God, formed with the words of your grace and hope and forgiveness, let us go to bring the bread of life to our world. Called to be faithful as followers of Jesus, let us go and share hope and healing with all. Touched by your spirit of wonder in these moments, Help us to bring peace to the broken. Amen. Amen.